Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist. To focus more on the emotional connection than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Hello, listeners, and welcome back to this edition of the Feelin' Film Podcast. I'm Patch, and alongside me, drifting into this episode, is my best friend and co-host, Aaron. That's good. Was that was that American or is that foreign? What was that? That was that a, Hans Mazda RX-7. Okay, so it's not American muscle. I'm no. not sure. <laughs> Who wants American muscle? American muscle is dumb. <laughs> I want flashy and neon. <laughs> Apparently Sean does. At least well, for a minute. Sean's got questionable taste in a lot of areas. <laughs> but hello, hello. It's good to have you back. Yeah, it's good to have you back. I'm not the yes. one that went on vacation. Well, true, true. I, mean, we I guess were, I kind of did, but we I didn't go anywhere. Exactly. <laughs> a staycation, as we live in this world of quarantine. I did go somewhere, an undisclosed location, because I don't want to report to anyone and have to be quarantined for 14 days. So just know that I was gone, and now I'm back. And this week, we are finishing out our celebration of the Fast and Furious franchise with Justin Lin's initial directorial entry but we're not that, not really we're not really finishing out our. we are finishing it because we've got furious 7 coming out at the end of this week that's that means that that would be finishing it whatever you know we're oh we're, you said this week i see what you're doing not this episode yeah, yeah this is the penultimate episode of our furious summer let's oh. just call it that <laughs> okay you're screwing up my intros quit it yeah i've really <laughs> wrecked this intro big time all right, so if you don't know by now, we are covering the Fast and the Furious Tokyo Drift or just Tokyo Drift as we will refer to it from here on out because that's just a lot of words that I don't want to say over and over again. While technically this is the third entry in the series, it's actually the sixth in the uh, timeline. So if you are confused as to why it's being covered now, be confused no more because we will tell you that just what we did. So anyway, as we always do, let's talk one word takeaways which is and will continue to be family for this series. Aaron, give us your explanation for this one more takeaway. <laughs> <laughs> well, before I do, I'm going to really quick drop this knowledge on everybody because I don't know if we let them know that Mean Girls won the July patron donor pick episode poll after a runoff in the Facebook discussion group between Mean Girls and Clueless. It was actually a tie in the voting for the patrons and there had to be this extra poll and then mean girls ran away with it. I'm excited, Patrick. I would have been glad to cover either of those because I haven't seen either one in a long, long, long time. Uh, but mean girls should be fun. We're going to be covering it. I think late next week, the end last week of July. And then we're also going to do a bonus episode that goes out to patrons only. Um, and that will be on some sort of, Fast and Furious related ranking, not of the movies themselves, but of something fun within the franchise. Patrick came up with this idea about five minutes ago, and I was just like, that's perfect. So if you want to catch our extra Fast and Furious content, you can get that over at patreon.com slash film for as low as one buck. Everybody that's a Patreon gets access to all of our bonus catalog that we have uh, both past and present and then, of course, future. Now, my one more takeaway family, as always, like you said, listen, in what other world, in what other universe, cinematically speaking, is Sean, an Alabama country boy, Han, coming off of an international 
heist or an international saving of the day, I guess, against this massive cyber criminal, Neela, an international foreign student in Tokyo, Twinkie, another army brat who drives an incredibly cool hulked-out van, how are they ever going to be a family in any other movie? Like, there's no other world in which this group of characters comes together and forms a bond. But yet here we are in the world of the Fast and the Furious where anything is possible. And you're going to get a family, Patrick, some way, somehow. And I love the way, specifically this viewing. I will tell you right up front here, the movie got so much better for me. It did the last time I watched it with you. And this time it actually is elevated again. I don't dislike it at all anymore. Like I actually think it is very highly underrated. I really, really enjoyed this viewing. But their relationship between those four characters as it progresses throughout the film is exactly what we expect from this franchise when we're talking about family. And you get the added bonus in this one of some fun little familial tangents that some of the other entries don't necessarily have because you get to play around with Sean and his dad's relationship, even though it's a small plot, right? It's not a big thing, but it's there and it allows itself to give you a couple of really cool moments between those characters in this movie. You have the familial issue of DK and his Yakuza uncle and how that plays into his decision-making and on everything that is driving who he has become. So I really enjoyed that. And I was like, man, this is kind of extra family in a sense. It's not just about the crew in this one. It kind of goes beyond, which some of the other movies don't do. And I really liked that about it. This is definitely initial stomping ground for Justin Lin to explore all of that stuff. And I think that it's fun to watch this in order, out of order, depending on how you look at it, to see what a director like Justin Lin was trying to do with what he had. I mean, he had this difficult challenge of creating an entry in which he brought back zero, and I mean zero, of the original characters from the franchise, save the stinger at the end with Vin Diesel. And at the same time, he does bring in these aspects of pockets of family that echo in these other movies. And I think it's, it's interesting to look both forward and backward at Justin Lin's directorial career in this series of movies, because it's almost as if he starts something that continues. If you watch it based on the release of the movies, but at the same time, watching it in this order you now see kind of how it becomes full circle, how everything seems to connect, even if it is disconnected, because it's true. We can't really make a direct connection to the crew. There's no Brian. There's Han, but there's no Giselle. There's no Letty. There's no connection to the first or even the second film. But I think what Lynn does so well is he, he doesn't say, I don't care. He says, I want to keep what I think is important intact and still be able to put something together that's going to feel fresh, alive, that's going to feel like an entry into the fast universe that makes sense. And and that was difficult. I don't think I could do that in a directorial chair saying, okay, here's the idea. 
what are you going to do without bringing back some of these folks that you fell in love with in the first two films? Hmm. What do I do? Well, let's take them to Tokyo because that gives us a fresh start. And I think it does raise the question how it works as part of the Furious universe in terms of its continuity and tone. And for me, Aaron, I think it works perfectly. I think it builds off of the first two in terms of its action, in terms of its flamboyance. I think it's very much setting the tone for what a Justin Lin movie is. A Justin Lin movie is, in some regards, a really cool extended video, music video. I mean, you get your scantily clad girls dancing in slow motion in front of cars. You get this fantasy of what we fell in love with, with street racing. And then we have the added benefit of giving us a different style. And I think what Justin Lin doubles down on are all those elements, but he still maintains the sense of, hey, it's about people. It's not just flamboyance. It's not just fantasy. It really is about the characters. And when you have a fresh cast to work with, I'd like to believe Lin's like, okay, I can do this. This is fine because I'm going to tell my story. And I think that Tokyo Drift, even if the majority of people, even if the Rotten Tomato scores don't reflect its value, I think this gave Justin Lin an opportunity to do what we have fallen in love with, which is to synonymously create an action movie universe that is connected to the characters and the family that surrounds it. So for me, I think it's a fantastic first entry for him as a director. And I also think it works simultaneously as a later entry in the timeline. So we know that it works really well. And I think that when we see what Lynn does, introducing us to this new culture and a new kind of driving, this drifting, immediately watching it for the first time. I'm not watching it for the first time, but I remember watching it for the first time and going, this feels good. I love street racing. And there's a reason why I like the first one. And I sort of like the second one. But when you're given the challenge of essentially starting over in some respects, you have to be able to add a layer of excitement. And so as an audience, we're introduced to not only this new kind of driving, drifting, but this culture that we are embedded in, which is Tokyo. We're kind of in the United States for a few minutes with Sean, and then we kick over to Tokyo. And Lynn introduces us to this new culture through drifting. And I wanted to know, when you look at this, what do these two elements do to you when you watch this that make the franchise feel both the same and different from its counterparts, both before and after it. So I love the drifting, and I think that the drifting is a special thing. And and it really stands out here because it's the only movie in which we see a focus on a different kind of racing. The thing that we get to see multiple times throughout the series is drag racing. And of course, street racing throughout the streets in crowded traffic of cities and such That happens frequently as well, but even in this movie, the street racing gets an element of drag racing to it, particularly one awesome, 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 awesome moment in the movie when they are running from DK 
and driving through the streets of Tokyo at night, and it is just people everywhere, and Sean is barreling down on this incredible stack of humans, like, literally just, like, packed one after another out in the middle of the street, and they're honking and honking, and he drifts in a, like, arc through the crowd. It's, it's sick, okay? It's it, it impossible, probably, but whatever. That happens all the time in this franchise. But I think that that stands out because it carries over the focus of drifting is in every aspect of this movie's race scenes. Whereas you can't do that with drag racing. It, it's literally impossible. You can't have fun, action-packed driving racing sequences in a movie like Fast 6 or 7 and do them all as drag races. It just doesn't work. You can kind of put it at the beginning, <laughs> you know. It can start off as a drag race and then get crazy, but that's about all you got. And so I really like how it's embedded here. And like you said, culturally speaking, we're in Japan. So this is a very specific to an area type of racing. And so it makes sense. Okay. And the fact that these people here are experts at a thing and Sean is coming in as a foreigner who thinks that because he can drive a certain way in a certain other place that he's automatically going to be able to compete and do this thing at a high level is typical American hubris, frankly. And so we're utilizing the race culture and the racing, which is the underlying point of these movies existing or the thing that kind of, it's not the point, but it's the thing that connects them all to each other in the franchise. And you're, you're using that to kind of tell this bigger story about this character who is coming in as an American and thinks he can do all of these things when he really can't. Like, you're walking into someone else's house and someone else's world. And that first scene where he meets DK really shows that off. Like, he's talking big, man. And he shouldn't be. Like, I can't root for Sean in that moment because Sean's wrong. And if you walked into my house and you were like, hey, bro, like... I can podcast better than you because I've had a lot of cell phone conversations and talked about movies. I'd be like, okay, I've got 300 plus episodes under my belt. You know, I'm the PK. I'm the podcast king here. Like, Gaijin, back off, right? So I think that the way that Lynn is able to just completely immerse drifting into the nature of this movie is actually more than drag racing has ever been immersed into any one movie, even the original Fast and Furious. It's one moment of the big movie or two big scenes, right, where initially Paul loses his car, but it's really a street race anyway. It starts off as a drag race. The only real drag race in that movie is the end with Vin and Brian. And it's iconic, but this movie is all about drifting and you get it so many different places like i said through the streets of tokyo you get the freaking garage stuff i don't know why it all stuck out i don't know why i never i don't know why i ever didn't like this movie because i was like they just drifted around in circles like up a freaking like have you ever driven around those at an airport or like a hospital patrick they are insane i cannot even i I pretend that i drift every time i do that do you? I don't. I freak out because it is a really awkward feeling and it's scary and there's no way. And so it's so cool to see that. And then the mountain stuff, man, has got to be one of my favorite race settings in the entire franchise. Just the drifting 
through the mountains. So again, it's culture. It is not just racing. It is a way of driving. It, it's sort of the equivalent of Dominique Toretto's mantra of like, um, you know, ride or die. Like it's drift or die. You know, like that's just how they drive. And I really think it's just fantastically woven into the fabric of this movie by Lynn. Absolutely. When you look at the movie as a whole, I think here's what Lynn does intentionally and maybe unintentionally. He weaves the culture of Japan, obviously, throughout this movie, because that's where we are. But there's a an elegance to this type of driving that is very much in contrast to Sean's attitude toward the East and Sean's way of driving. I mean, if we watch the opening race scene with Sean and the football player in his Viper, which, you know, rest in peace, Dodge Viper. That's one of my favorite cars to see it get destroyed. Just makes me sad every time I see that, but it's very aggressive. It's very much that whole scene is all about who goes the fastest and who gets from point A to point B. It's what we're used to, Aaron. It's what we were used to from the first two entries. And so Lynn then says, you know what? I'm going to pull my audience out of that familiar world, just like Sean's being pulled out of his familiar world. And I'm going to put them in this place where it takes more than just a heavy foot and granny shifting or whatever it is Dominic would probably say about Sean's driving to win a race. It's all about elegance. It's all about when to pull the brake. In fact, there's a funny scene where Sean's in the car and he's telling Twinkie, yeah, if you could give me a 30 second, tutorial on how to do this and Twinkie just gives him all this jabber that he's like and he has no response it's like the silence and then Twinkie goes just don't just don't hurt the lady just don't hurt Mona Lisa all right and you know he's just in trouble and we're like we're just waiting for the car to literally crash we're waiting for the wheels to fall off we're waiting for what eventually happens happens you contrast that with later on in the movie Sean is hanging out with Mila and it's really cool to watch this scene and think about the scene with, with Brian and Mia when she shows him how she drives and he's like freaking out because she's like weaving in and out of traffic. But Mila and her driving, it's part of this array of cars that are just drifting back and forth down this quiet mountainside. And they're having a similar conversation about her past and, who she is. And it's this really great intimate moment, but it's framed in the sense of elegance that we don't see in the other movies. The other thing that I think Lynn does as a director, and I think what makes this entry valuable, that it's not a throwaway, is the fact that we go away from the United States. Now, we haven't done that before. We've been in Los Angeles, we've been in Miami, and now we're in Tokyo, if we look at it that way. Mm-hmm. But at this point, we've now been across the continents we've been to all these different places and now we're used to it so this entry fits perfectly it's like oh yeah it makes sense for us to go to tokyo why not we've already been to mexico we've already been to uh, brazil you know we've been to these places where action can be allowed anywhere so we're used to that and maybe without thinking about it lynn was like yep why not just go cross-continental and then get the advantage of giving us this Japanese culture, this awkward moments of wabaki and trying to figure out how to eat 
a Japanese meal without ketchup, you know, these types of things. It's very much an American living in Tokyo, but it's not like Lost in Translation. Not even, not even close to it, but it still feels awkward. It still feels like, man, I don't know how to fit in here. And I think Lynn has this ability to invite us in to that world, make us feel awkward, but also make us feel accepted because of these relationships that Sean is making. Not only this, I won't call it a, maybe a redeeming relationship with his dad, maybe just more of a kind of a, I don't know, a consolation or whatever it is, a cordial, but maybe a respected relationship, but also with these relationships with Han and Twinkie and Mila. And I think it's a really beautiful thing because it's framed under this umbrella of Tokyo as a country, or excuse me, not Tokyo as a country, but uh, Tokyo as a city to allow us to feel both the beauty of this place and the awkwardness of living in it as gaijin. And you don't get that a lot. I mean, you, you've seen that in other movies, but to kind of put that in a world where now it's in a racing movie, I think is pretty, pretty great. And I think it speaks to how cool, just how great Justin Lin is as a director. Well, Lucas Black headlines this entry. And it's clear from his other work that his characters will always come from the South with that thick accent. I absolutely love him in Friday Night Lights. I think that's my favorite role that he's in. And love him or hate him, I think Lucas Black fits really well into this world as the. I agree. Agreed. I'm sorry. I'm just, I'm agreeing. Like I'm, I guess that's my point. Like, I don't get it. I don't get it. People don't like it. And it's gotta be because it's different because he's so different than Paul Walker. And it's funny because I'll let you continue, but the, that opening scene you're talking about with the race, by the way, that's Zachary Ty Bryan, which is hilarious because for those of us who are older, and grew up watching Home Improvement. We watched uh-huh. this guy. This guy was like little, little kid, right? And now here he is, like being a jerk. But he fulfills this incredibly perfect jock role. And Lucas Black is just so different than Paul Walker. There's no smoothness to him. No just sparkling great looks and... A, a smile that'll knock you down. I mean, he has a good smile. Don't get me wrong, but like he is built as a character intentionally, you know, buzz cut. He looks very different and he acts very differently. And I think it's gotta be that just jarring when people first saw this, like the nature of it just being such a shift, right? Going from one thing to this other thing. That I think people that don't like this movie must just be hanging on to that and have not been revisiting it because I just can't see you revisiting this now and feeling the same way about it. You know what I mean? And for me, like that culture is a big deal because I wasn't into anime when I saw this movie the first time. I wasn't into Japanese culture at all. I since have gotten very interested in that. And so now being in this world of Tokyo is a bigger deal to me personally. And so that has enhanced my thing of it too. But yeah, anyway, go back to raving about lucas black (laughs) well to your point what makes it appealing is the fact that he is so far removed from this culture it's one thing to be an american in tokyo it's another thing to be a southern american with this thick alabama accent in tokyo and i think lynn took advantage of that i think he said look 
if we're going to go, let's go all out. And I think it doesn't feel realistic because we don't imagine a Southern person in an Eastern part of the world. We think, yeah, let's put an American, but let's put an American in that doesn't have that thick country accent, you know? So when you look at him, it almost feels unbelievable, but I'm telling you as someone from the South, as two people from the South, he is very real. He is very genuine. And like I said before, he's a lot like your Keanu Reeves where his strength is what he shows on screen. That kind of naive, slightly arrogant, a little misguided, tough, whatever kind of muscular dude, but not like a, not like a brawler necessarily, but a guy who can hold his own. He's not cool at all. He's not cool. And he's not meant to be, which I think is what makes that first scene, that first encounter with DK so, so funny where he's asked, do you know who this guy is? He's like, oh yeah, you're like the Justin Timberlake of Japan. And what? Are you kidding me? I know. I mean, why are you doing this? He has though? no respect for anybody. He doesn't. He absolutely doesn't. And I don't know that we get a clean character arc where he then has respect. I think what happens is over the course of the movie, it's not that he gets ingratiated with the Tokyo culture. He gets ingratiated with the people around him and he really stays himself, but he earns the respect of the people that become his family, become his friends, but doesn't change who he is. I mean, he's still arrogant by the end of the movie. He is still a smart aleck. He still has a mouth on him, but he's one that doesn't back down from anything. Whether it's from ignorance or whether it's from strength or whatever, his character from beginning to end is one that you know he's not going to back down from a fight. Whether it's a street fight physically or whether it's a race, he's going to be someone who is always going to stand up for himself because whether he is right or wrong, he believes in himself. And at times it comes across as stupid, but that's the entertaining thing, Aaron, because a lot of us are like that. When we feel like we know everything, he's a high school's kid. He's 16 years old in the movie. Obviously, he's not that in real life, but he is in high school and he thinks he knows everything. And we get to see those flaws play out over the course of the movie. We get to see him learn from those mistakes and still make mistakes. And by the end of the movie, yes, there is a bow wrapped up around this whole thing, but he's still who he is. And I think that's what makes him appealing. And again, he surrounds himself with these different people. And I wondered from your standpoint, because we have this brand new cast, what did you think of the casting choices? Him or obviously, we, you know, we love him, but what about the rest of the main folks around him? Well, I think he does learn a semblance of respect. I think he is put in his place, first of all, because at the end, there's a critical line that sells this for me, and that is when he walks in to the uncle's club, and he walks up to him, and he specifically says this. He says, I need to apologize to you for your nephew and myself acting like idiots, essentially. Like, he apologizes for the two of them, and I think he 
has a recognition there of the relationship that DK has with his uncle. I don't think he has a respect for him, but I think he has come to understand that there is this thing kind of like part of the culture, right? Like he is learning about drifting and now he's learning about Yakuza. And this is because Han has taught him, like this is the way that things are done here. There is a, a certain type of respect. And he learns that throughout. Like he learns that when he tries to walk into the classroom for the first time and he has to like take his shoes off and, and he doesn't figure it out for a minute, which I can't, I cannot imagine this, Patrick. I was sitting there watching this and I was like, dude, how do you go to a school in a country where you don't understand the language? I just don't, I can't fathom what that would be like. Uh, but he manages, of course. And so I think he does learn some, but I agree with you. Like ultimately he's still going to race because that's what he wants to do. Even when he's told this could be your last chance and he doesn't necessarily, you know, it's kind of interesting at the end of this movie because when he makes that deal with the uncle and he's like, winner, you know, is forgiven, loser leaves town forever. And I was like, that's kind of a low stakes thing for Sean to be honest, like Sean has to leave town. I mean, I guess maybe you could read it as if Sean has to leave Tokyo, then he goes to jail. So maybe it's high stakes, but it felt like it's a lot higher stakes, I think, for DK than him. But like, even when he insults DK and he calls him Donkey King, Donkey King, Donkey Kong, he's like, you know what DK stands for? He's like, Donkey Kong. Patrick, that is what every single one of us who didn't know what drifting was at the time in our lives would answer that question as. Yep. Not trying to be mean, not trying to be rude. The Justin Timberlake is definitely a great yeah. dick, by the way. <laughs> that was awesome. So for anyway, first of all, uh, are we going to talk about DK separately or am yeah. I talking about? Okay. So when it comes to supporting cast, I, I mean, the supporting cast holds this back a, a bit. Okay. I, I don't dislike these characters, but A, we only get them once. So it's really hard to build a strong connection to them but if i'm looking at fast and the furious the first movie versus this movie i'm looking at the characters in it even going back all the way to just having seen the first movie the way in which the relationships play out with mia even vince and jesse and some of those side characters i feel more for them than I do in this movie. Part of it is because Neela is a closed up character. She's not revealing anything about herself until that beautiful scene where we find out a little more about her. But even then it's, she's more of like a plot pushing kind of character. She, we don't, she doesn't really get her own little arc. You know what I mean? And so she's good. She's serviceable, but she's not memorable. Twinkie, Fills the, fills the role. Like, he's fun. He's energetic. He's hilarious. And I think he's rather good. And I think he, in a world in which we were going to continue this series with a younger crowd, he would fit into, like, the Roman slash Tej merger. He's like both of them put together. Role really well. I think he could carry forward. But, you know, again, he doesn't have his own thing going on. He's just kind of there to help push the plot along with Sean. And so these are not things that I find to be 
problematic for me when I'm watching the movie, but if I'm going to like try and separate the films and say, that's why I can't connect with it on that same deeper type of level, it's because those characters are not fleshed out. Same thing with Sean's dad. You know, he's an army guy who's there. We learn a little bit about him, but I mean, it's really not much. So yeah, I think that if there's a weakness in this movie at all, for me, it is just the lack of character development the lack of focus on the characters for that side crew. But to that point, the reason for that is because all of that character development is going into Han. And I don't care because I love Han and we love Han. And sometimes I actually, Patrick, in hindsight, I forget how much Han is in this movie. Like for, I don't know why, but I always am like, oh yeah, he was introduced in Tokyo Drift as if he, you know, had a cameo or something. But he's in this movie a lot. Like, we get to learn about him and the way in which his story is woven throughout the franchise, I found it to be pretty brilliant for the most part. The retconning that took place deserves a lot of kudos because to go back and take these pieces of dialogue that Han says in this movie and find a way to create a perfectly reasonable explanation for everything that has happened. When Han is first met, he talks about having money, right? Well, why does Han have money? Well, we know why Han has money. You know, Han doesn't want to talk about why he's back here. Han talks about, you know, having family in the past. And when we are watching this movie as we are in timeline order, we know that now Han is back in Tokyo after having left the crew because of Giselle's death. And it's all very understandable, right? Like, it makes sense to me what is happening. It makes sense to me that Han is kind of wanting to stick it to the Yakuza a little bit. Like, it's not about making money. It's about putting those guys in their place a little bit. And he's he's kind of that kind of anti-hero. He's got that vibe. He's got that sort of a little bit above the line he's not like a full criminal if you want i mean it's hard it's hard i don't know how to describe it because he's a criminal like if we're talking about breaking the law but he's sort of a robin hood ish character in a sense like he 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 gives you that 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 essence when he acts and so i really enjoy how much he's in this man and I, i love the way he offers mentorship and i the other thing i really liked about hanan's movie is just how much he stands back and he allows things to happen because they deserve to happen. When DK comes up to Sean and beats the crap out of him, Han just stands there. He doesn't interfere. And you know what he says to Sean at the end? When DK walks away, he's like, you brought that on yourself. What did you think was going to happen? Like you specifically went after this guy's girlfriend. Like, did you, do you think that you deserve anything less than that? You know what I mean? And so he is sort of, he's such a great, like, mentor in a way because he doesn't make Sean do anything other than the beginning when he's like, get in the car, you're going to be my, you know, (laughs) you're going to be my collection guy. (laughs) You thought you had a choice. (laughs) I love that line. But other than that, you know what I mean? He just, he doesn't make him become somebody. He just shows him the ropes 
and gives him advice along the way and lets Sean make his decisions and then, you know, supports him as he can the best. And he eats a lot of chips. Like, it is really insane. It's become a meme. <laughs> a lot of chips. There, I, It is a lot. He's the Brad Pitt of the Asian world. Really insane how many chips he eats. Always eating. Well, I will tell you that the the supporting cast, I agree, is serviceable. And I think what is both a blessing and a curse about what Lin does in this film is that he brings these familial subplots to the forefront, but they are hard to flesh out because this isn't Neela's story. It's not a story about the mafia. It's not DK's story. All of these things serve what we see is Han and Sean's story. Because essentially this is a, a co this is a co-star, in my opinion. This is about both Sean and Han. And the fact that they rhyme, I think, is pretty hilarious. Just kind of realized that, me too. Yeah, like because I never say, hey, Sean's talking to Han. I never think about that. But anyway. But the other thing is that when you look at these two guys. They are polar opposites in terms of their demeanor. We've completely talked about how Sean is so uncool but thinks he is. Han is every bit of the word cool because of what he doesn't do. I love how he doesn't freak out when the Mona Lisa gets completely destroyed. He just leans over and says, don't leave town. And (laughs) in scene. It's like he's always in control, Aaron. And I think that's the mark of a leader. I think it's the mark of someone who knows how to essentially guide rather than pull. And you're right. When you look at how he takes Sean under his wing, he allows him to fail. And at the same time, he offers this level of grace that I think is learned because of his experience with his previous family, Sean comes in and the first thing, you know, he knows Sean comes in after, I think he gets kicked out of his dad's house or whatever. The next scene he comes in, Sean doesn't have to say anything. He's standing there in the garage and Han goes, get this man a bunk. You're part of it. He gives him the car and he says, I want you to learn. And it's this mystery around him that we know, like we have all the inside because we've, walked with Han through this. And I'll confess, there were parts of it that I had trouble reconciling. The retconning was really beautiful. There were some plot holes. There were some things that I don't care about because I love the character so much. But I did have a hard time kind of wrapping my head around how he could be so coy hanging out with girls and that one scene that is very cool, by the way, where (laughs) Sean says, why do you race? And he goes, I'll show you. And he gets the girl's number. You know, they do the drifting around that these girls. So, so it's awesome. so cool. <laughs> and so because I love the franchise so much and because I want to support what Lynn is doing here with this retconning, my plot point that I fill in with Han is that this is his way of grieving. Right. He's completely closed himself off to any kind of romantic relationship. And that's very consistent throughout the film. Mm-hmm. I think he looks at his relationship with Sean, it says, that's what matters. It's not about the girls. I mean, yeah, it's great to get their number, but you never see him in a romantic relationship. You never see him trying to find someone to latch onto because that's not his role. 
His role is to be a mentor. He's finding new purpose. And looking at Sean, I think he sees someone that he can work with, someone that he can value and be a part of this world that he is in. And I'd like to believe that that comes from his experience working with these guys that came before him. So for me, that's what keeps it consistent is that Han's character is consistent. And in these moments, in this movie, with a few inconsistencies, it's still a progression of who he is all the way up to his supposed death. And, and I think it's fantastic. I think the, the way that, that Lynn puts this and weaves this together is something that is very difficult to do, just like it's very difficult to bring a brand new cast into this universe and, and make it work. He does it here as well. Well, you mentioned, I mentioned DK, not Donkey Kong, but Drift King, played by the hardworking Brian T, who I know as the Shredder from the most recent Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie. And of course, I've never seen his face, you know, except in this movie, but he's actually done a lot of work. I was looking him up on IMDb. He's got a lot of credits. I think he's on Chicago Med or something like that. Plays you know, you watch so many of those shows that I actually thought that's where you were going to tell me you knew him from. Well, no, I don't. So I don't watch that many procedurals, one or two procedurals. It's, it's not, look, I watch game shows right now. Right now. I admit that. Oh, In the fall, procedurals. There's, there's, one, there's one procedural I watch, and that is The Good Doctor. <laughs> but anyway, Fair yes, he, is, he has made himself a name. Um, I, I read that he got his start as a love interest on a Hallmark movie. I'm interested to see if that's playing anywhere beyond the Hallmark channel. But I I think that he does a great job as DK in this. I think he, just like Han, is one of these characters that is very suave. He's very confident in who he is. And at the same time, Aaron, when you bring in that Kamada element, you see a different side of him. And I think as a villain in comparison to the other movies. I don't put him at the top by any means, but I definitely don't put him at the bottom. I think he lives right in the middle as someone who, if we had more time to flesh out that subplot, I would probably grow to care more about him as a character because of the pressure that he feels. That scene with him and Kamada where Kamada comes in, looks at the books, and then says, hey, your partner's stealing from you. In that moment, I'm thinking, Either one, he doesn't know and he's completely like taken aback or two, he does know and he's trying to cover it up. There is a level of embarrassment that I feel for him in that moment. He cries. Yes. And the next scene where he goes after Han and the crew, I have a little bit of sympathy for him because I'm like, dude, yeah, he's stealing from you. And I, w I didn't necessarily want what happened to happen. But I understood where his anger came from and what he was trying to represent. And the fact is, he is called out on a number of occasions as being sort of a farce, as being sort of like a puppet of the commodity. You think you're a part of this mafia. You think you're something, but you're really just a puppet. You really are just a lackey. You're an accountant. You know, you take money and you give the percentage to your uncle. And I think that 
when you look at him and you look at his motivations, overall, I really, really liked him as kind of an, not an anti-hero, but a less than villain, more of like an intriguing villain. I was talking to a friend of mine the other day and they said, the best characters that I enjoy are ones that are villains because they're not necessarily what you expect. Heroes are who you expect. You expect Luke Skywalker to be Luke Skywalker, but when you look at Darth Vader, he is not who you think he is when you find out more about him. And I think DK as a character has that potential. (laughs) And I don't know that Tokyo Drift necessarily fleshed that out as much as I wanted it to, but I love how he's written. And I love the fact that he does get some sympathy, that he does have some kind of motive for why he's doing what he's doing. He's not just that mustache twirling bad guy. Yeah, I will say that I don't think of him as a villain. And it's hard for me to rank him because he is different than every other quote unquote villain in this franchise. That's true. Everybody else that the crew comes up against as a main antagonist in the film, he is an antagonist is someone in the criminal world that they are contending with either because they are fighting criminally for the same thing or they are later trying to take down for some reason, whether it be personal or because they've been roped into it by Hobbes. The difference with DK is that he it's a very personal situation. It's beef and nothing else. Sean comes onto his turf, talks smack, tries to put him in his place, and then tries to take his girl. I mean, if you really look at it, he's a jerk, but Sean asks for everything that happens in this movie to happen. He initiates everything. DK doesn't go out of his way to attack Sean and ruin Sean's life. Sean walks into the world that DK already has going just fine, and Sean tries to assert himself and put himself into it, and take a place. And so, I love that kind of story. And I realized that this time around, because I did have some of those feelings for DK, that you were expressing some of that empathy for the world that he lives in. And while I don't care about him, I don't like him. I don't think that he is someone I would want to be friends with. I don't like the way that he treats Neela. As the story goes on, I also was very understanding of the fact that he's just doing, protecting what he's always had. And Sean is the one that's coming in and trying to completely change everything for him. And uh, I, I, so I get it. And I think that Brian T is awesome. I think he's awesome. I really, really enjoy the performance here. He has just an, an incredible charisma is not the word man i don't know what the word is but like he presence, maybe presence. presence is a great word the way he can hold a stare there's a few different shots especially that first meeting when he comes up and he goes up he tells sean to get out or whatever and calls him a gaijin and then he walks away and then that's when sean fires back as he's walking away right like a punk with the Justin Timberlake comment, again, initiating this, the way that Brian T makes his turn and comes back up to Sean and gets right in his face. Yes, and just, and dude, there's no 
facial movement. He just, it's a dead stare. It was terrifying to me. Terrifying. It's so intimidating. Like, in a lot of ways, that stare was equal to or more intimidating than some of the ones that Dom and The Rock give in the franchise. So I was so impressed by him this time around. And I think that he is a great actor because he was able to take this presence that he has throughout the beginning of the film and most of the middle, and you can watch it eroding. You can see it falling apart, his control going away as things start to get out of whack with his uncle. And as Neela starts to push the boundaries of getting away from him and picking Sean, you can watch him like he's tried to keep it under control, try to keep it under control. You can, you can feel it. It's like this ball of tension that's building, building, and he's about to snap. And you get like pieces of it when he attacks Sean. You get another piece of it when he grabs Neela up against the wall and you're like scared to death that he's going to do something worse to her and he doesn't. And then ultimately, you know, it leads to him just going all out like, all right, fine, I'm done. You know, I'm going to kill you at all costs now. Because that's the, the way I have to go when I've had my, you know, manhood assaulted um, and you've disrespected me so much. And so just watching him as an actor go through the progression from where he is the moment we meet him all the way to completely unhinged at the end and disgraced as he's crawling out of that car as his uncle's walking away from him. I think it's a phenomenal performance. It really is. And I probably years ago was like, this guy's dumb. Like, oh, he's not really good or whatever. But I, I think it's great, man. I think that Justin Lin really understood what someone in that world in Tokyo would act like. And it was, it felt very authentic to me in a way that many of the villains in this film don't necessarily feel. There's something to be said about honor that I think is not said so deliberately, not said so directly in this movie, but it's kind of insinuated through the course of DK's, his, his arc as a character, where he feels like he's being disgraced. He feels like he's got a safe face. And there's this critical moment when Sean is talking to Kamada and he makes that proposition, which I agree is very low stakes for him. I mean, you leave town, you go to jail. Oh, sorry, Brian. Or sorry, I said Brian. Sorry, Sean. But DK says something very legitimate. He says, I already beat this guy. And I don't think he says it because he's being arrogant. I think he says it because he's like, I don't need to prove myself again. I've done this. Why do I have to do it again? I think some of it is fear because he knows that Sean is being trained essentially by Han, that he's got some skills now i mean he's beaten one of his lackeys or whoever is second in command uh which by the way is just a really hilarious moment where when he loses and like loses his crap yeah it's yeah and he just comp and it's so again dk in that moment is absolutely aware of the social rules it's that same stone face that he gives sean only without the grin where he walks past Han and drops the keys in his hands. I've lost. I respect it. I'm mad as I'll get out, but a loss is a loss. A car is a car. A pink slip is a pink slip. And 
unlike his driver in the back that's throwing a fit, he knows when he's been beat. And I think in that moment, I think he feels like he's starting to really lose control, losing the girl, losing his control over the mafia or whatever it is, as the accounting guy. I see his digression and it does come to fruition and come to completion in that final race and seeing him crawl away from that. It's both sad and justifying at the same time, which is something you don't get a lot from a, an antagonist. You don't feel a sense of, I feel bad, but at the same time, yay, Sean, you got it. You're now DK. You're now the Justin Timberlake of Japan. You know, it's, it's one of those things where you kind of have this dual feeling when you watch the end of his arc and it's like, he deserved it, but I kind of feel for him a little bit. And that's great. It's great writing from, from Justin Lin and his, his crew. Um, is it Chris Morgan who wrote this one? Yeah, it's all Chris Morgan, but yeah, Yeah. he doesn't actually kill anybody either. Like he tries, but he doesn't successfully carry that out. Han is not killed by him. He's killed in a race with him, but he's not actually killed by him. And so you're left feeling like you could hope for a little bit of redemption for this guy. It's not like he's Carter Verone where we watch him murder people or, you know, uh, even um, Braga where you're watching them directly responsible for the deaths. Like he acts out and he does attack people like that, but it's in a way that you feel like is more like a young, like a kid who's out of control and doesn't know what he's doing. It's much more, it's like Johnny Tran. Of course, Johnny Tran does end up killing people, but he's very similar to that character and the way that that character feels like he's disgraced his family and is like lashing out. And I think that that's by design. I think it's a very common way to react in that culture. So those cultures. Yeah. Well, as we finish up this discussion, we can't forget about the great action sequences because every furious movie has these. And this one is no exception. Do any particular sequences stand out to you, Aaron, in terms of being like, that's probably going to be the one in this movie that is the best. All of them. I actually (laughs) love every single race and every single action moment in this film to me stands out from the very first race with the jock and the way in which they try to block him out and not let him get past and the way the cars go flipping and the great dialogue throughout that whole action scene with the girlfriend saying, like, I thought you loved me. And then like Sean and winking at her and her being like, you know, well, I guess, <laughs> I guess I'm, guess I'm going to prom with somebody else. And just the way that that whole sequence like plays out, I think it's awesome. And then we've talked about most of them, but like just the drifting through the street, the way in which that nighttime race happens with uh, DK chasing Han and Sean is a really good race moment. The race in the garage is iconic from the racing around the garage all the way to the circular coming back up the top uh, in the roundabout, both races. And then the stuff on the mountain, like every time it's awesome that we get a really cool race on the mountain and we get the, the nice serene Sunday drive on the mountain, which is like you said, it's very, Unique. I know there's some other moments in the franchise where that happens with the crew on some level in some ways, 
but it's not quite like this. There is just something really special about that scene um, from the, the aerial photography from the top. It just was unlike anything else in the franchise having been, and especially I'll say this, how it fits in after watching one through six. It wouldn't have quite that same effect in my opinion, if I was watching it when release order of number three in my, in a row, but because there's been so much action ramp up, it feels like such a great breath overall for me in this franchise to watch it in this order because it's like, okay, I'm going to calm down. I'm going to bring things back a little bit before we know what's going to, we know it's going to ramp up and get nuts next, but it lets us pause and have these down, everything in this movie is down to earth and incredibly grounded. Um, and so, yeah, man, I, I think it's great. I think they all are memorable to me without being like memorable in a over the top way in a safe dragging kind of way. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. It's that scene is for the reasons that you mentioned, the one that stands out to me and I won't call it, I guess an action sequence, but for me, it's what I think Justin Lin does. Well, I think it shows his ability to pause his ability to take a breath, be able to recenter and be able to give us time with the characters. That's what we've talked about so many times with his entries is that it's not just go, 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 go. It's boom. And let's sit here with the characters and boom, let's sit here with the characters. And it's in those moments with the characters that we really gravitate towards. It's what makes us fall in love with these movies and there wasn't a lot that was memorable in terms of dialogue in that scene, but I think the scene as a whole, and as you mentioned, that photography above, seeing, what, seven of these vehicles almost in sequence just drifting back and forth. There's no screeching of the tires. It didn't sound like it. It was just quiet. And it was like, I want to be in one of these cars. I want to hang out with these guys and just rock back and forth. It's almost as if they were trying to put me to sleep you know kind of calm me down so to be able to see that i think shows that justin lynn's ability to have restraint and his ability to direct both up and down moments make him for me the quintessential director for this franchise because that's what it needed it always needs the ability to start and stop and not abruptly but to flow and that scene, I think, represents what it means to slow down and slow down appropriately. Oh, there's no doubt. Justin Lin is the director of this franchise. And every entry we've rewatched and talked through for this series has just reaffirmed my faith in him and the remaining two movies in the franchise and him coming back. And I just have no worries, man. I don't. I don't have any worries at all. I... Have seen him do it now over and over and over. Every single one of his entries I have liked more than I did in the past when I rewatched him and talked about him in depth. And I think he's great. And, you know, you were going to ask a question at the beginning that I don't think we got to that was, you know, does this add anything to the franchise? Because a lot of people throw it away and say it's so different that we don't need it. And, and I really do think it's fine 
Like it, I, I understand that the franchise can exist without it because it is an offshoot and because the characters are tied in in a way that is, you know, retconned <laughs> for lack of a better word, like it's forced. But I would love to see more stories like this in the universe. So if the franchise is going to continue, I wouldn't mind seeing something with one major character that has not necessarily spun off in a way that that major character is the lead, but that is a co-lead or a side story about what they did or what they might be doing in the future. Like, give me a Tej and Roman story that doesn't center necessarily on Tej and Roman, but has to do with something that happened to them in between films or once everything's said and done. You know what I mean? Part of me actually was lamenting, to be honest, after watching it this time around, Patrick, that it wasn't Lucas Black that they brought back at the end of Fate to replace Paul Walker, to like be that extra guy. Part of me was like, you know what? That would have been freaking cool because he could have fit in and brought something wholly unique to that family. But I think that he has the demeanor that he would have been able to become a part of that. And if for no other reason than the bond with Han that they all shared. And then we don't know what happened with that race. Do you think he beat Vin? Because I want to know, did he beat Vin? Because Vin, Dominique would never, Dominique Toretto will never tell you he lost, right? He never has lost. And, but, I mean, come on. He's not a drifter. We've never seen him drift. I, I don't know. I don't know, man. I, I, I got my doubts. I think Sean might have took him. I agree. It, it would have been fantastic to have him be that connecting piece for fate because I, it's been a while since we recorded that episode, but it definitely wasn't the strongest in the franchise. It was still enjoyable, but to be able to bring him back, I think would have been fantastic because it would have created that synergy of connecting the East with the West, the Tokyo Drift with the rest of the franchise. And that I think is a struggle that a lot of people have is what makes this entry feel so independent is its strength and its weakness. And it could have been treated. And I think early on it was treated as a, okay, well, we're essentially going to create a FF presents Tokyo Drift, even though I know that's not what it's called, but I believe early on in the development, we're like, okay, what are the great things about Fast and Furious? Okay, let's include those got this brand new cast what do we do and then we get vin diesel agreeing to come back and now we've got a whole new angle that we can take this from so it's very difficult i think to connect characters what i am optimistic about is that i believe and wikipedia can be wrong it really is i believe <laughs> is when i read about the Next entry, I believe Lucas Black is coming back. At, you know, he's he's bringing his character Sean is coming back. I want to say Twinkie is as well or Mila. I, there are two or three characters that him and two others, I believe, are making their return. Oh, be still my heart. Oh, man. I believe that's the case. I, I know Lucas Black is, but I think there's at least one or two other characters from... Uh -huh. Tokyo Drift that are coming back. Oh, I'm even more hype now. That's insane. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that is going to be awesome. Because, I mean, 
at first I was like, oh, Han's death's a little unrealistic. You know, we see the explosion, but we never see him crawl out of the car. But when you see the last final shot, the car's actually on fire from the top of it. So feasibly he could have survived it and then not been burning. And, but what I notice is all the characters, they leave immediately because they're trying to get away from DK. And so they flee. So it is not out of the realm of possibility that Han comes out of that car while they're running and while they're trying to deal with DK, gets to a hospital, gets picked up by Dom and says, listen, I'm out. I'm, I'm done. I gotta, I gotta get out of here, man. Gotta go. I gotta get out of Tokyo somewhere. Nobody knows me and start over or something, you know, stash me somewhere, bro. And I think that's what's been happening to him. And, and so it, it actually makes sense now to me. And I've really worked hard to make sure it makes sense because I needed to feel that way about it. But yeah, I'm excited if you're telling, oh, mm, it's going to be good. Check the Wikipedia page again. I will after we're done. could be wrong, but I, I believe I remember Lucas Black's name being on the cast list for phenomenal for the, for the next uh, Furious movie. All right, connecting point time. And this movie had a handful, but I believe one that stood out is both yours and mine. And that would be Han's conversation with Sean above the soccer field, which by the way, starts out really hilariously. Twinkie is just doing a number on these guys. And apparently they think he's fouling or he's cheating. And (laughs) the transition is so fantastic because they're yelling up at Han saying, Hey Han, call that. He goes, what do I look like a zebra? You know, what am I doing here? And there's this conversation that starts with with him and Sean and Sean asks on why he lets him race his car knowing that he was going to wreck it. Han says, it's trust and character that I need around me. Who you choose to be around you lets you know who you are. One car in exchange for knowing what a man's made of is a price I can live with. And I think that is probably the thing that stands out to me as the consistency upon and what echoes throughout the rest of the movies that he plays a part in because it's the family that he surrounds himself with, that he sticks with, that he loses in some regard that define who he is. I think it's what allows him to come to Tokyo in spite of the fact that he's lost Giselle. They were going to do that together. And if it were me and my love and I were going to go to Tokyo to live our lives, it would be very difficult for me to do that after I lost her because that was going to be our place. And yet he comes over to Tokyo and he starts this life where it's not about women. It's not about anything more than just finding who it is that he can trust. And he meets Sean and he's willing to give up the Mona Lisa because he doesn't care. He's got money. He's got millions of dollars from a heist that we experienced with him two or three movies ago. He's looking for a new family. He's looking for a way to start over, to find that trust and that loyalty and that character that existed with Dom and Brian and Letty and all these guys And that moment with Sean, I think he's letting him in because he doesn't let anybody else in. He is just 
this standoffish, cool guy who eats a lot of chips. But that moment with Sean, I think, is one that nobody else gets to see. And the fact that he says it while looking out over this slew of people in this intersection and describing them as people that just follow the rules. He says, life's simple. You make choices and you don't look back. No regrets. He might be grieving. He probably is always going to feel that loss of not only the love of his life, but the family he had to leave behind. But I think he needed to go to Tokyo to simplify and to say, this is a choice I'm making and I'm not going to regret it. I'm not going to look back and say, hmm, should I have done that? And by investing in Sean, I think he wants him to feel that. I don't think he's saying, I'm ready for you to join my crew. I think he's ready for him to say, look, I've learned a lot and I need to give it to somebody else because it's necessary. It's important. And I think it's the most important thing that a person can have is to surround himself with people that make him better, that help him define who he is, that challenge him and who he is. And that's what he does in this movie, Aaron. He challenges Sean. He doesn't handhold him. He lets him get beat up. He lets him wreck cars. He lets him fail. And that moment, I think, is Sean's wake-up call to say, you know what? I see what you're doing. It's the Miyagi Karate Kid moment where he realizes that painting the fence and painting the house and sanding the floor all has a purpose. It all had an alternate meaning. He's now getting the aha moment. And it's really, really cool because it's not only a great moment in the movie, but it's so consistent with what we have seen Han in the rest of the entries. And I think it makes a great little exclamation point right before his supposed demise. Yeah, not a lot to add there. It's a shorter scene. Um, I think I do see it slightly different than you in that I think that for me and for what I read is where Han is at in the moment. It's more about him almost lamenting that he is not there and he is selling Sean. This is the way I, he's doing the Miyagi thing, but he is not doing Miyagi in the sense that he is showing him, this is how I live my life and you should be like me. He actually says, and I think the wording is important. He does, he says life, he's talking about the people below and he's saying, you know, I admire the people below. He says life's simple for them. They make choices and they don't look back. He doesn't say you and he doesn't say I, he says they. And I think because he's talking about them in context of I'm admiring them because they make choices and they don't look back. I think he wishes that he could make choices and not look back. But I think he's telling, telling us that he's not, he's wrestling with that. Now, the beautiful thing about this scene, and this is where I'll take the rest of this, is that for me, this entire moment is what makes the retcon brilliant writing. And I don't know how it worked out so perfectly, but we're taking lines and we're able to put context that happens that we knew nothing about and that probably the writers didn't actually have in mind, right? But yet we can take it and we can perfectly figure out how it works knowing what we know. And so the idea of Han wishing he could just make choices and not look back feels right to me feels like he would be giving that advice to this young guy because of what we've seen happen in his life. And then particularly 
those other lines that he says to Sean during this scene. He actually starts it off by saying, you know those old westerns where cowboys make a run for the border? This is my Mexico. Makes perfect sense. He's done. Like he has had his shootout at the OK Corral and survived it and lost friends. And now he's done. He's Billy the Kid who has done his rating and had his fun and made his, you know, bed and, and had to lie in it. And he's one of the only ones left. And so now he's just going to go down to Mexico, forget about his past and let it be. This is his Mexico. And just like in those stories, what happens? They, somebody catches up to him. Pat Garrity catches Billy in Mexico and kills him, right? Like it, you can't get away from it in those stories. It happens all the time. They run away, they try to retire to some quiet place, and then they, they can't. It never works out that way. And then the other part is that line that you quoted where he's talking. He says, it's trust and character that matter to me. And who you choose to be around lets people know who you are. Which, hello, family, one more takeaway. Like, everything about this series is right there. It's trust and character that matter to everybody in this crew. That is what binds them together. Not the money, not even the adrenaline rush, right? It's certainly not the, you know, action, because <laughs> some of them are very reluctant when it comes to it. But it's the trust and the character of those people that they're around that allows them to become close and become a family. And I love this scene for those reasons, like you do, because it feels like he is passing that torch and saying, I see in you what I've seen in a lot of my friends and myself from this family. And I want you to be better. Or I want you to understand that this is that some of these parts are valuable, but also, you know, you need to do it carefully. You need to, to think, et cetera. And so I, yeah, I think it's, it's beautiful. It's a beautiful mentorship scene and moment. Um, and I think it's by far, the connecting point in this one. Absolutely. Well, that wraps up another episode of feeling film in just a couple of days. As we mentioned before, we finish off the furious universe with our conversation on the emotionally resonant furious seven, bring your tissues for this one. And then next week, as we mentioned before, look for this month's donor pick to drop where we cover mean girls as voted on by our amazing patrons. Aaron, thanks for another great conversation and we'll talk soon. Hey everyone. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoy the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. These help increase visibility for the show and grow our community of listeners like you. We also invite you to connect with us further by joining our ever-growing Facebook discussion group. A link to that is in the show notes, or you can just search on Facebook and find us that way. If you'd like to continue the conversation with me, you can follow the show on Twitter at Film, or connect with me in the Facebook group very active in both places and would love to chat and if you want to connect with me you can find me at shoeless patch on both facebook and twitter be sure to tag me in any comments so that i'll be notified and not miss you once again thank you for listening we'll be back soon until then stay positive and keep feeling filmed